All right, all right, all right. We have a lot of ground to cover today. I'm going to try to finish this up today. Um, if you have not, if you are in here for the first time because you were in some other class, it is your great misfortune to have to try to um, understand some of these things. But I, I tried to make it ac as, as, as uh, accessible as possible. Okay, um, I've probably spent more time preparing this particular talk um, than any of the other lessons. Uh, and, and just for partially because of that reason. So let's pray and then we will, we will dive in. All right. God, we are thankful for the opportunity to um, discuss these things, to ponder these things. And we pray that you would help us do so well and with wisdom. We pray that we would have a humble disposition and posture as we consider the nature of disagreement and peer disagreement. And although this is a a deeply, deeply philosophical problem. It has profound practical implications. And uh, we pray that at the very least we would be stirred um, to be humble believers, uh, assume the best, to be critical thinkers in the name of truth. So be with us over the next 45 minutes or so, we ask in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So today we are talking about peer disagreement. Um, Peer disagreement is a topic in analytic philosophy that has a ton of stuff written on it. A ton of stuff written on it. And uh, the, let me just state what the problem is with a couple of examples. Um, suppose I have two thermometers and I take my daughter's temperature with one thermometer and another thermometer, and I have reason to think they're both equally reliable. Okay, but they both give me different temperatures. Which one uh, do I know what her temperature really is if they disagree? You know what I'm going to believe? The one where she can go to school. That's the one. All right. You know, I'm going to make a practical decision, but I probably am not going to know. Um, well, what about cases of just visual disagreement among people? You see a dog run by the window. I see the same dog. We're both equally confident visually. And you say it was black and I say it was yellow. You know, you might think after we discuss it a little bit, like, no, I'm sure I, I'm sure it was black. No, I'm sure it was yellow. You might think, eh, maybe I'm not so sure. Okay? Suppose I have two money counting machines. They're both equally reliable. They always go for their maintenance. And yet we count one batch of dollar bills. One machine yields this result. The other one yields this result. Do you know how much money there is there? Probably not. You have a disagreement of peer machines. What if you're a mathematician? You've got a brilliant mathematician in the department with you. He's one of your colleagues. He's just as smart as you are. Okay, He's just as educated as you are. He's won all the same awards that you have. And y'all are both tasked with solving a problem. But you get to the very end, just knowing that both of y'all are going to get it right. And you have different answers. You might be very reasonable to think, both of those mathematicians would look at each other and go, uh, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. It's the problem of peer disagreement. Notice in all these examples, I'm not talking about a mathematician um, competing against a kindergartner in math. The idea is it's a peer. That in both of these, no one has an epistemic advantage. No one has a cognitive advantage, the special window. No one has, in the situation here, it can't be explained away by someone just being smarter or someone just having gone to school longer, or someone just this and that. These are true peers, okay? I just want you to look. These are a couple of the books that have come out. This is academic analytic philosophy here. 
The Epist- and I didn't buy these, so, so Glenn did not have a heart attack because all these books are very expensive. The Epistemology of Disagreement. Here's my copy of from Oxford on disagreement. Okay, I'm going to read an excerpt from this in just a second. This is an anthology. The epistemic significance of disagreement going across the top. Free, reframing the problem of epistemic peer disagreement. Disagreement and skepticism. The epistemology of group disagreement. The epistemology of fake news. And there's one practical application. I was talking to my dad about, what are you going to teach today, Tyler, in Sunday school? And I started talking about peer disagreement. He said, this just sounds so philosophical. I said, okay, well... Let me give you two examples of peer disagreement that we've all seen. One is fake news or conflicting news reports or conflicting reports about COVID-19. Is it this? Is it that? Does it spread this? Is it spread this? Here's two equally reliable reports. Everyone remembers back in the beginning of COVID, you're like, uh, who do I believe? Perhaps I'll just suspend judgment. Um, we just need to wait. We just got to be agnostic about that. Um, Perhaps theologically, you consider our friends in the Catholic Church. They weaponize the problem of peer disagreement against Protestant friends, and they say this. The scripture, the clarity of Scripture as a doctrine isn't a thing. You know why? Because all your top theologians, all your top theologians disagree. What's the unified view of baptism in the Protestant Church? Oh, y'all disagree, don't you? Okay. What's the unified view of church government? Oh, y'all disagree. What's the unified view of... Fill in the blank, fill in the blank, fill in the blank. The millennial, the millennium. What's the unified view? So you're telling me that all the sharpest, most informed people that we could call peers, perhaps reasonably, they all disagree. So how do you think you'd know? So what you need is an infallible interpreter, the vicar of Christ on earth, the Pope, in conjunction with the teaching magisterium to render doctrine for us. Okay? That's the, that's the Catholic's argument. They say we don't have to argue that though. We don't have to deal with peer disagreement. You do. This is a huge threat to knowledge. Here's why. If you end up adopting this conclusion, which we're going to call, do I have it yet? Yeah, let me just, yeah. So disagreement among those who share all of the known relevant information and experience, as well as equal intellectual ability to process and analyze that information. No one has an edge up in information, intelligence, or processing ability. Because by the way, if you did, it would make you not appear. It would be like, yeah, I'm going to stick to my guns here because this person doesn't know what they're talking about. Everyone's had a situation like that. Someone disagrees with you, and you're like, this person's just out to lunch. Yeah, I'm not threatened by there. But now someone who's just as smart as me or just as formed as me disagrees, like, oh, okay, maybe I'm not so sure. But if you do that, here's the thing. For every meaningful view you have on something in life, you will find people who are just as smart as you and just as well as formed as you. And people who you cannot reasonably probably say that you have some cognitive advantage over or you've learned more or you're smarter than who disagree and so the problem of disagreement is not just a navel gazing kind of philosopher's problem Um, it seems to threaten knowledge medical knowledge philosophical knowledge ethical knowledge etc etc okay Um, so flowing out of this these examples is something called the equal weight view in the cases of peer disagreement one should give equal weight to the opinion of a peer and to one's own opinion. And so if you break that down, like with Bayes' theorem, you have someone who believes something represented by a one. You deny something, that's represented by a zero. So you should split the difference, half, which would mean you're agnostic. You're agnostic about just about everything. I just don't know. I don't know because of peer disagreement. I just wish. I just wish I could say that, well, really, I, 
have an advantage, but I don't. Listen to Hillary Putnam and Richard Feldman. Richard Feldman contributed this, both eminent philosophers. Feldman writes this. He says, um, consider those cases in which the reasonable thing to think is that another person, every bit as sensible, serious, and careful as oneself, has reviewed the same information as oneself and has come to a contrary conclusion to one's own. An honest description of the situation acknowledges its symmetry. I mean, it's the same on both sides. In those cases, I think the skeptical conclusion is the reasonable one. It is not the case that both points of view are reasonable, and it is not the case that one's own point of view is somehow privileged. Rather, suspension of judgment is called for. It's going to suspend judgment. There's an eminent philosopher here. Eminent philosopher. Now, I want to point out that this is not a point about psychology. This point cannot be dodged by saying something like, well, I can't help but to believe what I believe. The person who's advocating this argument will say, well, I appreciate your honesty. I can't help oftentimes being compelled this way either. But when I find out that there are peers who disagree with me and I add that to the evidence pool, am I still rationally responsible for holding that? Am I committing some kind of intellectual sin by just saying, oh, I'm just going to ignore that? I, yeah, I appreciate your honesty that you can't help but to believe that. Um, but because an equally informed person is persuaded the opposite, you just need to say, I, I, I hold this view, but I, I, I'm not sure I hold it reasonably. I hold it. I'm honest about that, but I'm in the face of, I don't have an answer to this. So maybe this is, here's one to get a question. When you disagree with people who you feel are likely equally or more intelligent than you, equally or more informed than you, how do you justify, what do you tell yourself to justify sticking to your guns instead of saying, I, I guess I don't know? Just like the money machine, well, I'm a more reliable belief former than this person. That's why, you know, I went to school more. I'm more intelligent. And we're going to pause and say there is a ton of cases that are not peers. Social media has made everyone believe that they're a peer on things. There are people who are experts, Okay. People who are experts on certain things. And I know the expert has died a horrible public death over the last two years, but it doesn't mean there aren't, there aren't people who really, really, really do know a lot more than you and I about things. And we're not, we're not peers. It doesn't mean that we can't reasonably disagree, as I'm going to argue, but you have to tell a story about how, and it's not easy. Okay? So what, in other words, what exactly do you appeal to in the quiet of your own thoughts to explain why you have arrived at the right belief on a particular topic or issue and the person you are disagreeing with has come to the wrong belief if you are both equally smart and equally well-informed. I want you to listen to what Van Wagen says here about his friend David Lewis, who was probably, he was so smart it was hard to even, probably had an IQ of 180. Um, he was talking about, he gives this example here, uh, gives this example is his friend David Lewis disagreeing about free will, disagreeing about the nature of free will. Um, let me see where I want to start. Oh, there we go. So he talks about just the problem of him disagreeing with his friend, David Lewis, who was just as smarter, just as smart, excuse me, just as well as formed. He said, the difficulty of finding anything to say in response to this argument, taken together with my unwillingness to concede either that I am irrational or that David was irrational in being a compatibilist, it tempts me to suppose that I have some sort of interior, incommunicable evidence that supports incompatibilism. He says, it tempts me to think I have a kind of a privileged perspective that he doesn't have. Sorry for him. Okay. Um, 
it is not my cognitive faculties function better than theirs. Theirs are reliable, but theirs are not identical with mine. And in this case, some accidental feature of my cognitive architecture, a cognitive architecture, excuse me, has enabled me to see some entailment that this person has missed. He says, in the end, though, as tempting as, be- as tempting as it is to me, it's hard to believe. After all, I accept a lot of philosophical propositions that are denied by many able, well-trained philosophers. Am I to believe that in every case in which I believe something many other philosophers deny, which is basically every substantive philosophical thesis, I'm right and they are wrong, and that in every such case my epistemic circumstances are superior to theirs in some way? He says that would truly be... Am I to believe in every such case this is because some neural quirk has provided me with evidence that is inaccessible to them? If I do believe this, I must ask myself, is it the same neural quirk in each case or a different one? If it's the same one, it begins to look more like a case of my superior cognitive architecture. If it's a different one in each case, well, that's quite a coincidence, isn't it? All these evidence-providing quirks come together in just one person, and that person happens to be me. He says, Here I confess my predicament as a philosopher who holds particular views as a citizen, who casts his vote according to the dictates of certain political beliefs and as an adherent of one religion among many. I am unwilling to listen to the whispers of the argument from peer disagreement. I am unwilling to become an agnostic about everything but empirically verifiable matters of fact. I am unable to believe that my Gnosticism, meaning his claim to knowledge, is irrational. I am, I say, unwilling to listen to these whispers, but I am unable to answer them. That's how Van Wagen concludes. Okay? A haunting, this man doesn't usually say that. This man has, is one of the most brilliant philosophers, Christian philosophers, Living at the University of Notre Dame, he concludes his essay at the beginning of this, I'm unable to answer them. Listen, I'm sticking to my guns. I'm not going to be agnostic, but I have no idea what to say about this. And so today we undertake the ambitious task of improving, rebutting, and then improving upon Peter Vandenwagen. Okay? That's what we are going to try to do to try to end the class here. And I'm going to try to finish, make sure I finish up Today, But first of all, because I know that, that if this is not kind of your jam here, you'll be sitting there going, how long, oh Lord, till this ends? So, and I promise it'll end today or the first half of next time at the very least. And we're going to go into a, a, a series on the pastoral epistles, um, ecclesiology, so be there. But any questions about how I have set up the problem, what the problem is, why it's worth thinking about here? Why there's all these books written on it? Does everyone understand the nature of the problem and how it threatens knowledge and my, why we might want to think about it well? Who has a question? Someone ask a question. Does anyone have a question? Yes. Sure. Yeah. That's a. Yep. That's a. Yep. Run. Yep. That's a very kind of accessible. I, I think there are some. Once you get down to it, I think someone might phrase it a little more precisely, but that's basically it. That's the gist of it. That's the gist of it. Okay. Any Anything else? Any other questions? Yeah, Asher. Well, that's the whole problem. Oh, is that what you're, is that how you're phrasing the problem? Yeah. I mean, that's one way to say it. Between peers. 
Now, again, there's a many cases where you have disagreement where people have, re- even if they're wrong, have reason to believe they truly aren't peers with somebody. Okay? Every, we've all done this all the time. Okay? Especially in your area of specialty, when you're talking with someone who's not in your area of specialty, you're talking about a topic in that area, you don't think you're a peer. I don't. When I'm talking to the average person about the Bible, I don't think, I don't, I don't think that if we're talking about theology, I probably do not approach that thinking we're peers. I just don't. And I don't hope it's not a prideful thing to say. Uh, uh, you know, you have Grant at Harvard Med School. Guess what? When he talks to the average person about medicine, he doesn't think he's a peer either. Have you been to Harvard Med School? No, you haven't. Okay. You've been to urgent care. Okay. <laughs> Um, we ha- yeah, do you have a question? So, yeah, so it has practical import for both, but yeah, you can really phrase the problem either way. You can really phrase the problem either way, but the one we're talking about is me sticking to my personal guns. Not looking over at a debate between two people and being like, well, I don't know because they disagree. Um, that's kind of third person looking in on. Now we're saying, okay, now imagine you are one of those people. Why are, why are each one of them rational for sticking to their guns? Why shouldn't they just be humble and say, I don't know? They should just be more humble instead of just stubbornly sticking to their guns. Okay, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, it is. So let me just say thank you for that. The idea is the for the camera. I do a terrible job of repeating these comments and questions. The idea is that that we listen. We can't just be agnostic about everything. You can't. That's unlivable. Now, to be fair, you may you, the person who's pushing us was a him. Maybe so. Sometimes truth is really hard, though. I mean, we need to cling to the empirically verifiable things. We need to cling to our, our mathematical truths, axioms, our logical axioms, stuff that everyone agrees on, like what the word cat means. And then, and then the rest, we need to... So we need to throw out philosophical ethics, theology, religion, all that. And we can do life, you know, because everyone knows gas prices are high. No one disagrees about that. So you, it's not like you have to throw out literally everything, but things that aren't you know, empirically verifiable... Worldview, ethics, politics, uh, theology, go out the window. Um, so let me, how do I go back on this, John? Is there a way to go back on this? All right, so before I, before I get into what I'm doing, I want to I note, just to kind of hope everyone takes a breath here. I hope that no one's like, oh my goodness. Let's, I hope no one feels like existential crisis, because I'm going to try to help us out of this one. But let me just point out an irony that sits over this whole discussion, okay? Um. These are all books about if disagreement causes us to be, need, you know, causes us to adopt a, should cause us to adopt a posture of skepticism. Okay? And what they're saying is, uh, suppose you come to the conclusion that yes, like these philosophers I just read, like this one philosopher, Feldman, suppose you come to the conclusion, yeah, that when peers disagree, we should just say we, we don't know that claim. What's the irony, though? Here's a whole list of books about philosophers who disagree about whether or not disagreement 
causes us to need to give up our beliefs. Right? Equally competent, equally well-informed philosophers look at the problem of disagreement, and some say, no, we can stick to our guns. Some say we need to be agnostic. Well, guess what? That's a case of peer disagreement. So, so the irony of the whole thing, which is, just makes it so interesting, is that if you're convinced that peer disagreement should lead you to adapt agnosticism, you have to adopt agnosticism about that very claim because there's so much disagreement about it. You see that? That's an odd little problem that's over the whole discussion. Okay? So let's move on. Let's improve on Peter Vanenwagen. I wish he was here to hear this. No, I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't. So what I'm going to try to do is, is take, I'm going to take this in two steps. One is uh, the step of rationality that, that Van and Wagen talks about. I'm irrational or David is irrational um, or neither of us are. Uh, and then I'm going to talk about the skeptical problem. Okay. Um, what do I have this? So when we talk about the nature of evidence, when we talk about the nature of this body of evidence that everyone has access to, Van Inwagen, in his essay, and others who are, uh, I didn't get to teach this part of the class because we went to Lincoya, but who understand justification a certain way, understand more or less uh, evidence in the way it supports a particular conclusion, very much like a math problem, and steps in a math problem only support one particular conclusion, Right? So if you have a long math problem, it might be long and complicated, but the same mathematical evidence, theorem, problem on your test, whatever, doesn't support two answers. It can't support two answers. Vanenwagen says, well, when you consider all the reasons for X, Y, and Z, whatever claim that we're making, he said it's the same way. He said it's the same way. You can't have a body of evidence that could both confer rationality on A and not A. Um, and here's where, uh, he doesn't do a lot to define um, what it means, why we should accept that. He just kind of gives a couple of, uh, he just says he thinks it's intuitively obvious. I don't think it is. I don't think it's intuitively obvious whatsoever. Look at this little thing I found right here. Isn't this amazing? Suppose you and I are both great assemblers. We have equal assembly experience, okay? And um, we are given these materials in some little kid's bedroom. And I go in there, assemble it. And then you go in there and assemble it. Um, and let's suppose, by the way, obviously, if you're not, <laughs> I understand that this is a convertible setup. I get it. Okay, The thought experiment involves that it's designed as one and then someone puts it together as something else. I, I understand the objection that might come. Um, but you might think that with the same capabilities and the same pieces of architecture to work with, you might have two people who come to very coherent but different solutions, even if it, one, ends up not being the way it's supposed to be put together. You may walk in, you're like, hey, dude, that's actually not supposed to, it's really cool that you've got a desk and two chairs, uh, but it's supposed to be a couch. Um, but hey, did, you, did this person exercise cognitive excellence in putting this thing together? Yeah, they did. Um, is it a coherent whole? I mean, it doesn't look like some just disaster sitting there on the floor. It's coherent. It's even contextually appropriate. It's going in a room. He looked around and said, what could this be? Oh, it's a desk for a kid. Of course. We'll put another one on the other side. 
There's, there's, there's just bunk beds. There's two kids, one chair on each side. It even fits the context. Now, imagine you stepping in there and going, man, what we gave you does, did not support that at all. You got it wrong. How, have you ever put anything together before? Um, and so it seems to me that as we look at reasons to believe, and I'm, I just mean evidence. I mean, I don't mean scientific evidence. I just mean evidence. A reason that compels belief that, um, that it seems to me that, that whether I'm rational in concluding from a, a reasonable and in concluding from a body of evidence is really more on a spectrum and is something more like cognitive skill and less like um, something that is just true or false. Zero, one, right or wrong. Um, Ernest Souza, we skipped over this. No, we didn't. We, 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 uh, we gave the example. He's, he, uh, he gives the example when he's trying to define knowledge of an archer shooting at a target, and he defines accuracy as hitting the bullseye. But he says, well, what if you're terrible and you shoot like to the far off to the left because you have terrible aim, but the wind blows and you still hit the bullseye? He says, that's still accurate. He said, but it's not adroit. He said, it's not skillful. You didn't achieve the result because of any kind of skill. You, you got lucky. You were accurate and lucky, right? You were accurate and lucky. What I'm suggesting is something like when we skillfully, using the dictates of just basic reasoning, basic propositional logic, law of non-contradiction, formal and informal logical fallacies, we look at evidence, we understand burden of proof, whatever, um, that when we, when we form a conclusion based on that as peers, even if uh, you disagree with me, it's true that both of us can't be right. But it, it, I'm, I'm not at all convinced that I have to call, that I have to say that we're both irrational or that only one of us is rational because I don't understand it as this binary, okay? In the face of the math problem, let's take the mathematician who both got the wrong answer. They may very well adopt agnosticism. That's a great example of where you probably adopt agnosticism. But someone made an objective error in that process, right? Someone doing that math proof made a, like they whiffed somewhere. Somewhere, if you go back, there was someone who just added a wrong number. They did the calculus problem wrong and solved for the area under the curve the wrong way. Right? But with this right here, who had the objective wrong move? I, I don't know. I, I don't. If, if one person put that together the other way, the other person put it together the other way, was there an objective wrong move there? I'm not sure. Uh, in, in, in the sense of being a poor craftsman, obviously they put it together in a way that it wasn't supposed, it wasn't intended. But would you say they made a craftsman error? They committed craftsman sin somehow? No, because it's not clear that it's binary like that. Um, and so I simply disagree because I disagree about how we process evidence. Um, again, I didn't get to teach that part of the class. Kind of a, a bit of a bummer, so I'm leaving that part out. But the idea that evidence is this objective thing that's like a math problem that only points to one specific answer, and then you have a maximally rational person would always choose that particular answer, uh, I think is just a broken picture of, of rationality. Let me just pause for a second, because that's a big conclusion. Because that means when you disagree with someone, uh, you don't have to call that person uh, an ignoramus. Okay. You don't have to be insulted personally. You don't have to insult them personally by saying, well, you're irrational and I'm sticking to my guns, or that we're both irrational. It seems to me that we can both say, no, we're both thoughtful people and we disagree. So we can both be thoughtful. Okay, any, any questions about that? Any questions on pushing back on understanding how reasons inform conclusions in that way?
Yes. Oh boy. Yeah. Yeah. Probably not. Would, I think it would be totally incoherent without an explanation. I mean, it just is. I could recommend some great sources on it if you want the material, but it would be more like some short chapters and introductory books and not Tyler's notes because it would be like bullet point, accessibilism, bullet point, mentalism, externalist theory of justification. It's just like, it would be like reading Chinese, okay? But I will let you some resources, though. Point is resources. Okay. So that's what I'm calling the rationality problem. I think that one, I'm, I think that one is easier to get out of. Okay, I think hopefully what I've sketched here is reasonable. Um, that rationality is not some one-to-one -one correspondence that, that, that each body of evidence points in a unique, singular direction, and the only way to be rational is to be in aligned with that. Instead, it seems to me that, you, that rationality is more to be understood as cognitive skill, um, and that if it is, then you can have various levels of skill. Okay, some people are smarter than others, but they can both be rational. Um, okay, so let's talk about the much more difficult problem here, the skeptical problem. This is the one that we're all after. After all, if we were all rational, it was like, oh, well, we're all equally rational. Great, now we should all give up our views. <laughs> cool, great conclusion. Okay, let's talk about the skeptical problem. I talked about rational peers, uh, money counters, um, that thermometer readings that get different temperatures. Um, and I think in those um, examples, many of us are fine with saying, yeah, I would adopt agnosticism. Right? Now, if I have one thermometer that reads this and this, I'm going to just say, eh, I just don't know. Mathematician example, yeah, they should probably say, eh, no, I guess I don't know. But all of a sudden, you'll notice that when you start entertaining a bunch of other things, like someone's view on politics, or someone's view on this ethical problem, or this social movement, you'll notice people don't adopt that same posture. you notice people don't say, like the mathematicians who are equally competent and who solve the problem differently, uh, I guess I don't know. No, people say, no, I know, and you're wrong. Is that a justified step? If not, what's the difference? What's the meaningful difference? It is extremely difficult to sketch a decisive answer, but I'm going uh, to try to sketch us a path forward here. I'm not going to say that this answers every single question about it. Okay? Just stick with me here. Just stick with me. Just stick with me right here. Okay? This is, I know this is going to sound so hair-splitting to some of you. Okay? So what I'm going to argue for is something called evaluative agnosticism. Evaluative agnosticism, and you're going to see why in just a second. And that proceeds in two very important steps in response to this philosophical problem. Two steps. So step one. So step one. Let's distinguish between two very different, although they are very similar sounding claims. Claim number one. One should adopt agnosticism in cases of genuine peer disagreement. That's claim one. Okay. Claim two. One should adopt agnosticism if they have good reason to believe they are disagreeing with a genuine peer. Now, let me give you a parallel, because you're going, oh, Tyler, you lost me. Just give me a second. I mean, how about this statement right here? People with contagious illnesses should avoid being around other people. Who says that's true? Okay. Here's what I think 
you actually think is true. And, but don't feel bad. A bunch of other people raise their hand in their heart, okay? They just, right? <laughs> no, seriously, just listen. People who are aware that they have contagious illnesses should avoid being around other people. Isn't that what you mean? You don't expect people to take action on things they're totally unaware of. You wouldn't hold someone accountable for going somewhere with no reason to believe that they were contagious. What, you're, what you believe is that people who are aware that they're contagious, they, in other words, they have reason to believe they are contagious, then you think, well, you should stay home in terms of you know, be responsible, be loving, and all the rest. That's the difference between these two claims. What if, what if I'm talking with someone on the phone, just to make it a very clear example, who disagrees with me? Let's say we're not peers at all. Let's say this person's a world-class scholar in art history, and we're disagreeing about who, you know, painted a painting. I would never do that, I don't think. Um, but suppose I have a reason to believe that it was, you know, Leonardo da Vinci, and this person on the phone says, no, it was whoever, some artist. All right? Some artist that wasn't Leonardo da Vinci. <laughs> I'm a real art history scholar. I say that time period's my specialty. Um, but what if I don't know anything about this person? Does the fact that I'm ignorant of their epistemic superiority to me make them not superior? Of course not. But I don't have any reason to believe they're superior. Okay, I'm just talking to a stranger. In other words, they happen to be, but I don't know that. I don't have reason to believe that. And until I do, it seems to me that I would probably stick to my guns. Now, once he said, hey, I'm the curator of the you know, Oxford art history, I was like, okay, well, you're probably right. I'm wrong. But until I have reason to believe I'm in an inferior epistemic situation, Certainly, I'm, I'm entitled to stick to my guns. If, for all I know, I'm talking to some random stranger. One should adopt agnosticism if they have good reason to believe they are disagreeing with a genuine peer. Does that make sense? I understand that's a little bit of a difference. Someone asked a question if it's not clear. Because if I go to step two without you understanding step one, you'll be like, oh no, I got off the train and couldn't get back on. Okay? Okay? So maybe one way to say it is claim one is something like from God's point of view, which no one actually has. Claim two is a claim about the run of life, which is how we make decisions and act on things and think. Okay? One should adopt agnosticism in cases of genuine peer disagreement, but you have to know the person's a peer for that to be workable, for it to be actual threat to the run of life. Okay. You don't understand that? Come ask me later. Yes. Thank you. Yes. What's the question? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's not. He's. Yeah, great. Yeah. Yes. 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 Yo, so fantastic question. That we're gonna get to that. We're gonna get to that. So peer disagreement does include people who are superiors as well. Yes. But that's a great question because the, the, the question he's bringing up is, does that mean that everyone who is more informed than me or smarter than me and they disagree with me on a conclusion that we just have to cede knowledge to them? 
Then here, let's do, let's just go round up all the smartest people and get Grant and all his buddies up there at Harvard. And we'll go over to Oxford and we'll tell them, they can just tell us what to believe about everything. We'll get the people over there from the philosophy department and the theology department. We'll get the smartest, most well-informed folks and they'll just tell, all tell us what to believe because they're all cognitively, or let's just say, okay, they are to me, okay? So yeah, I think we are justified in sticking to our guns and we agree with people, we disagree with people who are brighter and perhaps more informed than we are in some cases. Teasing out why that is, is the project. Y'all, we're not going to get through. I'm going to have to just cut this off. I'm going to have to leave everyone in suspense. Okay? I'll, uh, 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 oh, man. Okay, let me just look real quick. I've got five and eight. I'll have to finish this next time, but um, I think it's worth it here. All right. I, I'm, I'm going to continue on until my 9.45 and then stop. Okay. Here's my initially difficult pill. This is going to sound like, Tyler, you're losing. You said you're going to help us here. Okay? The initially difficult pill to swallow. I think, I mean, I've thought about this so much. I've used so many different um, analogies and little thought experiments. I think that hypothetically, what happened? Did I spell something wrong? Huh? Oh, whoops. <laughs> it is a difficult pillow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw multiple people like, what is so funny? Oh, gosh. Every time someone starts laughing, oh, no, is it profanity? <laughs> like, did I misspell something like explicit? But anyways, I'm glad that's what it was. <laughs> All right. Whew. Let me take a step back here. Okay. The initially difficult pill to swallow, accepting claim two, that one should adopt agnosticism if they have good reason to believe they are disagreeing with a genuine peer. Um, initially, that sounds like I just ceded victory to the enemy. I don't think so. And I think there's actually, I, I think you could actually tweak claim two to say I could believe something a little more optimistic than that. Uh, but let me, let's consider a couple of postures you could have. Glenn outlined two of them. Suppose I'm, uh, um, yeah, well, let's use the mathematician. Let's use the math example. Let's just keep it what we've done. Two equally competent peer mathematicians that get different answers, they agree to be agnostic because they think, wow, you're just as smart as me. It kind of causes me to, okay, so I withhold belief. Well, so as a mathematician solves a problem against a junior math team person in the middle school, and they have uh, different answers. Who thinks that, mathemat that mathematician, professional mathematicians justified sticking to their guns? Okay, me too. Are they peers? No, not in that area. They're not peers. This person is going to say, I haven't even looked at the work you did, but I'm not threatened by your answer. I'm, I'm right and you're wrong. Okay? And even if the mathematician's wrong, he's probably justified. If Say he just, by see, we misadded the last number. He's still justified in sticking to his guns. Okay. So we have a case of peers. Now we have a case where one person's inferior. Then Glenn gave a case where someone's an inferior. So now we put ourselves in the position of the, ma the junior math person. Now the mathematician is your math teacher, the junior, the mathematician is, gets his answer. Then what do you say? You either say, I don't know, or you adopt their position. I think most of us would probably adopt theirs. When I got my math problems wrong and my math teacher worked it out on the board, I was like, okay, yeah, that's the right answer. Okay? Those are the three moves that get most of the conversation in all this literature. What are we supposed to do? But there is a third move 
that I think gets us out of the problem. Okay? And that is, consider, consider this claim. Suppose uh, the, uh, the mathematician, really any of them, frankly, let's say any of those people, the, the mathematician, his peer, the inferior, the junior math team person, uh, who was, of course, on the math team, better than the average person at math. Um, let's say they, they have a problem, they solve it. They have an answer. But on their desk, in an envelope, is placed an answer from one of those peers. But here's a, here's a catch. They don't know who it is. Okay? Could be another peer, junior mather. Could be someone who's inferior. Could be someone who's epistemically uh, superior. Same with the mathematician. He solves his problem. He sees in an envelope a different answer. He knows it could be from a superior mathematician, maybe the world's greatest ever. He knows it could be from his colleague peer, could be from the junior mather. He doesn't know. He's not in a position to know or evaluate the epistemic status. He just doesn't know. I don't know. I would, what I would suggest is in the case where that mathematician doesn't know, for all he knows, um, the person could be epistemically inferior, superior, or a peer, I would say that that person certainly, and in the run of life, certainly everyone, I, I guarantee you practically would agree, that that person's justified to stick to their guns. Because they have no reason to believe, they have no positive reason to think that they're wrong, and they have no reason to think that this came from someone who's in a better or equal situation. They just don't know. They don't know. It's an answer. They don't know what kind of stock is behind it. And so they're going to stick to their guns. This is a much more modest claim. Because in this claim, I don't have to give you a reason why I am a, in a superior epistemic status to you to stick to my guns. I just have to say, I, I just need to have reason to say, I just don't know. I, I honestly don't know. Why we aren't usually in good positions to evaluate whether we have genuine peer disagreement. With, with admitting that there are tons of times where you are not peers with somebody. Now, you may still stick to your guns, but not everyone's a peer because you can do a Google search. Okay? Um, look at my freckle watch. Okay. For the sake of coherency, what I need to do is I need to pa pause. Okay? I've tried to work through the argument to this point. Let me just summarize. Point one, we, we talked about how I think I can be rational and disagree with people. You have two rational people who disagree even over the same evidence because of how uh, evidence works. That rationality is more the exercise of a cognitive skill and not an objective response to a concrete dictum that evidence somehow speaks to me if I'm listening well. Uh, and then the second, we're trying to solve the skeptical problem here. First, distinguishing these two claims one should adopt agnosticism in cases of genuine peer disagreement, which is how it's always phrased. But really, one should adopt agnosticism if they have good reason to believe they're in a case of peer disagreement. I've initially said something like accepting claim two with maybe a little nuance that I'll get to. And so now I need to demonstrate this to you next time as we close. Why is it, if, if, if agnosticism is enough to make me be able to stick to my guns, because I don't know if the person is a peer or uh, um, superior in the language of the thought experiment, 
why is it that in most cases we just aren't in a good position to know about someone else's epistemic status? You may think, Bannon Wagon gives examples, he thinks that David Lewis, he says, I have good reason to think that he's an epistemic peer. And there are some cases where it may be the case. But tomorrow, excuse me, tomorrow, next Sunday, we'll come back and I will make the case for you before we start our, our next, I don't think it'll take the whole time, um, why we aren't usually in good positions to know whether we have genuine peer disagreement so that we should probably agnosticism to with regards to whether the person we're interacting with is a peer, um, regardless of how much of an expert they are in some cases, and that therefore we're justified in sticking to our guns unless we are provided reason to believe otherwise. Okay, that's the path forward. Thank you so much. If your eyeballs are crossed, come talk to me. I'm sorry, it'll end soon. It'll end next week. Okay, all right, let's pray. God, we're thankful to be able to um, consider these difficult things. Um, thank you for the uh, revealed word uh, that we don't have to speculate and philosophize about life uh, before you, um, that you have given us a, uh, a word that reveals a light of life in the gospel. Um, Lord, we, we're thankful for the opportunity to consider these things, even as challenging as they are. Help us consider them well and humbly. Uh, help us as we read conflicting news reports or we uh, or tend to uh, think of our own superior cognitive ability or better research or less brainwashed than the next person who disagrees with us to make ourselves feel uh, good about our believing. We pray that we would adopt a posture of humility um, and, and look out for where we can be and, in fact, be wrong. But at the same time, um, help us understand further how we can cling to that truth. So, Lord, be with us in our next worship hour. We pray that uh, it will be glorifying to you. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it.